You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, a very good and a very early morning to you. Uh, good morning, Giles, and uh, I trust all our listeners uh, are enjoying the podcast on what is now the day after Earth Day and a day which has seen some fairly significant uh, uh, global announcements. Indeed it has. So overnight, there was Joe Biden's Climate Leaders Summit. Um, Biden delivered, as had been predicted, a very significant cut in emissions target um, um, for 2030, 50 to 52% below 2005 levels. That's significant for a bunch of reasons. One, it actually is the first time the US, the world's largest economy and probably the world's biggest accumulated emitter of emissions, has actually taken the lead. It puts its share of the work needed on target for a two degree trajectory, not quite 1.5 degrees. It needs to go a bit further than that, uh, probably 57 to 63%. And it was followed by two countries which are important to Australia. One, Well, well, well more than two, Giles. I mean, just reading the list, we've got Britain at 60, negative 63%, uh, United States 52%, Europe 51%, Canada 45%, and Japan, which is really significant for Australia, 44%. And uh, on top of that, we had China announcing no new target, but for the first time making quite explicit Xi Jinping that uh, coal emissions in China uh, will have to peak by uh, 2025. So uh, that, that, that's a lot of progress. And the other point to quickly make about all, I mean, so the, the, the thing of what Asia is doing directly, Japan is Australia, as we've remarked, uh, largest uh, customer for our coal and gas uh, and, we, uh, and China's the second largest, and, and so what's doing there? And we're expecting uh, South Korea to make some announcements as well. But uh, the, the the biggest thing about these emissions reductions is that 50%, you can't do it just in the electricity sector, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the electricity is only, let's say, a third of emissions typically of a country. Uh, so to get a 50% reduction uh, it requires a lot more. Absolutely. But the um, emissions reduction in the electricity sector is key. The US wants a completely decarbonised grid by 2035. And from there, that helps you and allows you to reduce emissions um, in transport through electrification and also through building and um, and also helps with the manufacturing. And of course, you've got to target um uh, in, um, agriculture as well. Um, Scott Morrison um, didn't um, say very much. In fact, um, he basically said nothing at all at the start because his microphone didn't work for the first 60 seconds, which was a bit embarrassing. Um, so perhaps technology cast a judgment on his own uh, forecast, but basically nothing changed from his domestic rhetoric. No, it didn't. And uh, we've seen, but there is talk, uh, quite a lot of talk that Australia is going to announce more ambitious targets by the time the next big event comes around, which is the Glasgow COP uh, conference, which is due in November this year. And I do want to give Australia credit uh, for a couple of things. One is we have the, some of the most transparent accounting that goes on. We get quarterly updates and you can clearly see where, I mean, 
In China, there is no official release of their carbon emissions at all, zero. Whereas Australia, at least you can, you, you know, we want to criticise the, the numbers are there. And secondly, uh, even though it's done with smoke and mirrors and it's absolutely nothing to do with the federal government, Mr Taylor is correct in the sense that he says we are meeting our very limited targets uh, of 28%. Now, uh, before we probably should talk about something else before I blow my top talking about carbon <laughs> capture and storage. So why yes, don't you well, say something, Giles? Why don't I say something? Yes, well, I might sort of dispute about this sort of whether we're on target or not. So we're probably only on target because of the land use um, allowance, which um, Australia controversially has in its back pocket, and basically its fossil fuel emissions hasn't changed in barely a jot in the last couple of decades. But anyway, one of the reasons why we're seeing these new targets is the arrival of technologies, in principle, wind and solar and renewables and the storage that backs it up. This week, Carbon Tracker and Ember um, released a very significant report talking about the potential of wind and solar and their ability to help this sort of the massive transition that we're about to embark um, in the world. And we talked to Kingsmill Bond, who's the Chief Energy Strategist for Carbon Tracker. Kingsmill, thank you very much for joining Energy Insiders. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've just released a report, uh, Sky's the Limit, uh, timed, of course, with the Biden Climate Summit. The report has some fascinating predictions about the uh, observations about the potential for wind and solar. But one of the things that struck me was the speed of the transition in wind and solar that we've already witnessed and the fact that it is actually already um, delivering the fastest transition that we've ever seen, faster than coal, gas, oil or nuclear. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, these other energy shifts that we saw um, of, uh, uh, to, to, to coal and then oil and then gas and hydro and nuclear, the, the kind of growth rates that they, they were getting was a compound annual growth rate of maybe 3 or 4%, so you're doubling every 20 years or so. Um, solar and wind have a compound annual growth rate last year of, of 19%. That means they're doubling roughly every three years. Um, so by the time... Um, you, you, if you're doubling every three years rather than every 20, then, then, then obviously you've got seven doublings versus one doubling. It's, it's an extraordinary story. And I think the other point to emphasize is that um, many other technologies hit kind of limits to growth. So, you know, the, the, the limit to the amount of hydro we could deploy, limit to the amount of nuclear because you've got expensive um, limits to fossil fuels. There are basically no limits to uh, renewable energy deployment. Almost every single country in the world is just overflowing with renewable energy. And the fact that we've now crossed these, these cost barriers means that a huge amount of, of cheap energy has been unlocked and the sky is the limit, hence the report. Mm. I'll, I'll let Charles keep asking questions, but I just want to make an observation that the speed of deployment also has a virtuous circle because the learning rate is critically important in these technologies, solar, wind and batteries, and that when you double production, you, you reduce the unit cost by about 15, 10 to 20%. And so, that, that, you know, that, that's, that's become self-fulfilling. Back to you, Giles. Now, Kingsville, do you want to make an observation on that? Well, yeah, this, uh, this, this learning curve, this virtuous cycle that renewables have, again, we've got to realize it's so different to fossil fuels. In fossil fuels, it's a fight against, of geology against technology. In renewables, um, technology is, is working with size. So the bigger it gets, the cheaper it gets, the more you can deploy. Um, and, and, and the sort of fond hope of the incumbent system for years has been that this would somehow stop, but it hasn't stopped and it's carried on going. And um, I, I think 
it, I would really draw your attention to some very excellent academic work done by people like Doyne Farmer at the Smith School in Oxford, um, where he just points out that these technologies have very sticky learning curves. That is to say, once you're on a learning curve, it basically carries on going. And, and that is what distinguishes these, uh, these uh, manufactured technologies from the extracted technologies of fossil fuels, which don't have that learning curve. And that means mm. it's a totally different paradigm to what we've um, uh, experienced before. You also got some interesting graphs there. You mentioned Australia and the potential that Australia has. There's an extraordinary graph there. It just shows Australia has such, in terms of wind and solar per capita, it leads the world not just by um, a small margin, but it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. Australia is a, it's a big big country, a relatively small population. It's, it's very sunny. It's got a lot of wind resources as well. So, what we did in this report, we totted up the numbers for Australia and indeed for every country in the world. And, and, and it's astonishing when Australia's got 10,000 megawatt hours per person per annum of renewable energy uh, uh, technical potential, most of which is now economic. Um, and, and, and that contrasts with, uh, w w with the global average, which are less than 1,000. And there are certain countries like Japan where it's closer to 100. So the point simply is that Australia can become a, a huge reserve of energy uh, for the rest of Asia, for, for particularly for parts of Asia like um, Japan, Korea, and Singapore, which which are lacking in renewable energy resources. You know, it's interesting because uh, uh, the others in Australia, we've kind of almost moved on for that. Or, uh, we're very well accepting of the amount of wind and solar resource that we have, but we've moved on to the next set of issues, which is like uh, firming it all up and. Uh, and everything like that. And I think when you talk about the, the, the cost of the energy, you do have to consider the total system cost, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, of, of course, you do need to con consider the total system cost. So you know, you've got to think about not merely the cost of extraction, as it were, but also the cost of uh, distribution, getting it to places. Um, and, and this, again, is where we've seen this, these amazing uh, in innovations in subsea cables. Um, and long-distance um, uh, high-density transmission lines, which are making longer and longer distances uh, p possible. So uh, it, it, it's, it, it's very clear that for countries which are deploying higher levels of, of renewables, the total system cost of, of, of renewables in, is, is significantly lower than that of fossil fuels. Because don't forget, with fossil fuels, it's not just the extraction costs and the externalities and the pollution um, and, and the global warming, but it's also the massive costs of building uh, the infrastructure sh to shift this stuff around, you know, the coal and the oil and the pipelines. Um, and it's very interesting to give a couple of stats on this. So Mark Jacobson, for example, has calculated that um, the U.S. uses 1.3% of its land for its fossil fuel system. So fossil fuels themselves are very dense, but all the pipelines and the infrastructure are not dense, and it's very, very heavy. So you've got two orders of magnitude greater to shift this stuff around um, than you do for, for re renewables. And that means it's just ultimately going to be more expensive. And if we lift Africa out, uh, the African continent, which has obviously got, uh, when I say obviously, but uh, it's known to have an absolutely incredible solar resource, you know, a significant fraction of the total world, I would imagine. If you left that out, sort of thought about the relationship between wind and offshore wind and, and solar, and then I think your report divides the wind in, uh, and the solar into various categories based on, you know, uh, I guess proximity to demand, but also uh, water depth for offshore wind and wind speed primarily. 
even though technology is improving the outlook for low wind speed uh, electricity generation. How would you think about the relationship between wind and solar and, and, and that stuff? So um, the, we, we took data from, from uh, Solargis, the energy consultancy on solar and NREL on, on wind. And as you say, they, you know, they, they totted up in different ways. And, and um, so the, the first point, I guess, to be made is that uh, there's 10 times as much solar technical potential as, as there is um, wind. So the number is 40, well, it's about 5,800 petawatt hours a year versus um, uh, uh, about 900. Um, and I should say, in case you worry about my math, it's 5,800 up to 10,000. Anyway, the point to me is there's a lot more solar than there is of, of wind. Um, and, and then the second point, of course, is that um, there's a, a lot more domestic opposition in many countries to putting up um, wind turbines. People don't tend to like them so much. So the kind of solution that people will come up with in, 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 in every country in the world is going to be different. And, and, and this is what we say in the report. The technical barriers have been crossed. The economic barriers have been crossed. Now all you have is a political distribution of how to figure out how to do this stuff. And it's going to vary from country to country. So you know, in the UK, which isn't very sunny, um, we've got a fairly decent offshore wind resource. So we're going to be using offshore wind. Um, in, in, in countries like Australia or indeed um, in, in large parts of Africa where you've got um, relatively distributed populations, you can lose a lot of, of, of rooftop solar um, and, and then you know, some, some, some utility solar. Switzerland, for example, again, not a notably sunny country, is, is, is planning to get 40% of its energy from rooftop solar. And, and I think the point I really want to emphasize is that when you start digging, when you start looking in every single country in the world, at least every single country where the policymakers are awake, um, people are now coming up with plans to figure out how to get hold of this extraordinary amount of renewable energy, be it you know, Pakistan or the United States or the UK. Um, there, there, there are, it, there's intelligent, detailed analysis going on about how to figure it out. And I think the, you know, the, 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 the analogy can be drawn with the start of the Industrial Revolution, um, where people had this coal under the ground for years and didn't know how to use it. And then someone figured out how to use it. And then suddenly that released a, a cornucopia of innovation and, 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 uh, and growth and development. That's exactly what's happening all over again. And so, again, I'll just come back, uh, Will. Uh, and, and how do you see trade in energy de developing? I mean, you, you know, we can obviously put a cable between Singapore and, and Australia, for instance. But let's just talk about Europe, because I'm actually sick of talking about India, China and Japan and I think about them all day. Let's just talk about Europe, where I think Russia is a massive energy exporter to, to Europe in general at the moment. As a result of this um, change in, in, the, in, the, in the fuel to wind and solar, uh, backed up by, I guess, hydro for the firming of it at night time and winter, how, how do you see energy trade evolving? Have you thought about that? Yeah, we thought a lot about this stuff. I mean, I guess the, the first point to, 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 to make, um, and in Warren Buffett's famous aphorism, it's much easier to uh, sh shoot the horse than buy the car. That is to say, it's much easier to find losers of transitions than winners. And one of the very obvious conclusions about the growth of huge amounts of domestic uh, energy um, uh, resources is that we're going to stop or significantly curtail our imports of fossil fuels right across the world. So Germany will significantly reduce its imports of fossil fuels from Russia. Um, China's obviously going to stop, uh, as, a, as a small dig, obviously going to stop buying Australian coal and so on and so forth. And, and so, so, so 
the, the imports of fossil fuels will, will clearly fall over time. And then, um, again, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you're going to see um, development of, of ever wider grids because um, grids in, enable um, countries to balance out different resources. So it's sunny in Portugal and it's windy um, in, uh, in, in, in northern Germany, for example, and you, you have ever wider grids. So we'll see the building now of, of more and more um, grids and distributions and transmission in, in order to, to, to maximize this resource. Um, and then within Europe, just to finish on this issue, Europe's actually quite an interesting case because um, if, if, if we take as a kind of framework that the, the global average is 100 times as much um, renewable energy as, as people uh, need, as people currently use, um, is the technical potential. Um, in Europe, it's only 17. And there are certain countries like Belgium where it's one and a half or Germany where it's about three. And what that means is that it's just going to be much, much harder for those countries to do it. And, and they'll have to open up their, their borders to more imports of renewables. So, but we're seeing exactly that. So in the German um, uh, uh, lines to Denmark and, and, and Norway, um, and, and we'll see many more interconnectors. Mm. You've released this report, as you mentioned, at the start, um, at the time of the uh, Biden summit. Uh, we're actually recording this just before the start of that summit, but we sort of can presume that there's going to be um, um, a strong announcement from the US and, uh, and maybe from other countries. How important do you think that the, um, the Biden presidency and his initiative now is going to be to unlocking this massive potential that you've identified um, in this report? And in some countries, you say that um, they're already acting. Um, we obviously have released the report because the, the policymakers of the world are searching for the answer, and this is the answer. So we, we are sort of trying to provide them with, with a solution. And I think it's worth saying that one of the reasons why the uh, policymakers have been a little bit behind the curve is because so many of the uh, current forecasters, such as the IEA or the EIA in, in the United States, have been so slow and so behind the curve and so close to the incumbency, they have failed to see the speed of change and they have misled policymakers and taken them down the wrong path. Um, we've, we've sought in this analysis just to demonstrate there's a huge, huge opportunity. Um, so to, to come back to the role of policymakers in this shift, um, they played two roles, actually. The initial role was to get it kicked off, um, which is what they were doing like 10 or 20 years ago. And, you know, hats off to Germany and, and China and, and indeed the United States and Japan in their time for doing that. Um, that's happened now. The second role of policymakers is to remove the many barriers to change which currently favor the fossil fuel incumbency and allow the market actually to do the work. And that's, it's a really important task now, and that's what they need to start doing. They need to stop listening to the siren voice of the fossil fuel companies, which tell them that the answer is biomass and CCS and other completely fake solutions, and get on with unleashing the power of renewable energy resources. I, I agree with a lot of that, and particularly the uh, stuff about CCS, which, uh, but I won't spend time on it now. But I would like, uh, and I would say to you that you have to think, we already know in Australia that you have to think beyond wind and solar. You have to think about control of the system. I mean, inertia and that sort of stuff. You have to think about what to do on those cold, windy nights when the wind and solar uh, isn't there uh, for one reason or another. There's a, it's, it's more complex than just wind and solar. But the question I wanted to ask about is, is the European uh, New Deal and, and uh, policy in Europe, where, where exactly is the state of debate in, in your mind now? How much enthusiasm is there in Europe overall for the you know, 50% or 55% by 2030 style of target? And I might add, it goes beyond the power system into 
um, uh, you know, transport and 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 decarbonisation of other sectors as well. Have you just got a general comment? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, in, in Europe, as you know, um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this, and you know, potential German Green Chancellor, for example. Um, uh, and, and they keep on ratcheting the targets high. But I think it's, you've got to realize that po politicians are sort of following technologies. Um, so, so why did Boris Johnson, for example, decide to ban EVs? It's not because he suddenly got, sorry, ban ICE cars, not because he got religion. It's because the price of battery fell so far that it opened up the opportunity to do that. So um, I, I think that's what's happening now as costs fall and as the uh, pricing environment changes. So um, politicians have a new suite of opportunities and, and, and increasingly, particularly in Europe, they're, they're seizing them. But I should say, I think there's a lot of, um, I, I don't think Europe's necessarily making all the right decisions. I mean, you know, there's a lot of kind of dirigiste top-down attempts to solve these problems with taxonomies and all the rest of it. I'm personally not totally convinced that that's the right way. I think it would be much better to, um, uh, to, to, to make the polluters pay and let the market sort it out. But that's a kind of secondary debate. Mm. Kingsmill Bond, uh, we do. We understand that you do have another call to take, so we just have to say thank you very much for joining um, us in this podcast. Brilliant, thank you very much, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Now that was Kingsmill Bond, the chief energy strategist for Carbon Tracker. Um, some interesting things he said there at the end. Um, uh, David, um, one look, there's plenty of wind and solar. Um, you do point out that um, there's obviously integration issues, but what Kingsman was saying was really the technologies there. We really need at the moment the governments to sort of remove the barriers to allow this to be um, to be implemented. And I guess in Australia, it actually means freeing up the regulations and the rules and actually sort of putting into place the ISP. Um, but um, it doesn't seem to be dawning yet um, on the Australian government. Well, I don't know about the Australian government. Uh, we'll come back to them. But I think globally, the point that there's lots of wind and solar is something that's been increasingly recognised. And I would say it's really the risk around it, even more than the cost, that it's reducing that risk so that uh, governments and policymakers can be confident that when they use wind and solar, in the famous phrase, the lights will stay on. And in Asia in particular, it's, uh, it offers an opportunity for Asia, as I've said several times, to become all the countries there to become more energy independent, uh, not to depend on fossil fuel imports from whatever source there might be. So if you think about uh, Japan, it's never going to import coal from China. Uh, and, and, and so the fact that you have this local resource is, is, is a great thing for them. But... Uh, and I think, you know, it's wonderful to talk about wind and solar, and we do a lot. But as we said, Australia, which is a long way down the track, we're over 20% now and on the way to 30% wind and solar alone, never mind hydro. Once you get there, you do see all these other issues emerging that we, we do have to grapple with. You know, the uh, the need for transmission and the people that don't like transmission uh uh, the the need to change the control systems for inertia and voltage and so on, and and also the the total system cost around the firming. How is the firming going to be done, country by country? I mean, these are issues that a lot of the world just has really only starting on the journey to, to to understanding. It's more than just wind and solar. It's wonderful to have wind and solar. It's fantastic, but it is not the complete answer. 
No, and it was interesting that the AMC actually came out with a draft ruling this week um, talking about um, addressing some of the inertia issues by um, actually creating a market that will allow battery storage and even wind and solar farms to actually um, play in that market and get rewarded for doing so. So it's a fast frequency response service, which is actually sort of responding to sort of network issues and, and, and trips of major generators within two seconds. Um, Giles, but not a very fast implementation, three years, I think. <laughs> That's right, I know. Yes, um, apparently the IT systems have to be updated, but um, my gosh, look. Um, well, that's, a surprise. <laughs> that's a surprise, isn't it, really? I mean, whoever would have thought it? <laughs> Next thing, we'll be updating them for five-minute settlement, you know, over five years. Uh, dear, well, yes, well, there you go. Hey, look, at the risk of um, getting you to blow your top, um, look, the significant announces, um, announcements by Australia this week, it was all based around sort of hydrogen and these technologies. Um, it was really just very frustrating to see the focus being on carbon capture and storage, and goodness knows where they think that's going to be applicable, certainly not in the electricity grid, maybe in some industrial um, purposes and also hydrogen and disturbingly not really focus on green hydrogen but pushing just as much gas and even coal hydrogen in the uh, Latrobe Valley. Well, I, you know, a hydrogen labelling, as we've already said, as the Smart Energy Council proposes and on Origin uh, Energy wants to have smart, uh, the origin of uh, hydrogen is important. The green hydrogen we won't talk any more about here. It's getting more and more uh, sort of um, momentum. For instance, as an example, uh, Peter Coleman is the just retiring CEO of Woodside, and Woodside is Australia's preeminent LNG producer. And he basically says there won't be, or shouldn't be, or won't be any more mega LNG projects done like Gorgon uh, because the world doesn't want them anymore. It's moving towards green hydrogen. As far as carbon capture and storage goes, anyone who studies it will know that uh, it has a very uh, poor history, which is not to say that some odd carbon capture and storage projects in some applications might have a role. Santos says, for instance, that at, uh, at the Cooper Basin, one of Australia's big gas uh, processing hubs, uh, it can do carbon capture and storage at the point of gas production uh, for about, I think, 25 US dollars a tonne. And, and that, that may well be right, but who cares? The gas is still going to be shipped off uh, uh, and burnt somewhere and, and produce the carbon at that point. And just because uh, Sandos can do it doesn't mean that coal stations anywhere around the world or other gas uh, producing regions can do it. So, it's just not a technology that's applicable to broad economic decarbonisation. And when when the government is pursuing that uh, and ignoring, and we'll come on to this, what uh, AEMO and the Energy Security Board and what everyone in the electricity industry knows is the better way to do it, the more economic, the modelled way, uh, it's uh, which would include a transport policy, it just shows that they don't have any commitment. And this is the fundamental thing. They don't have commitment to do it. And with it's just a big job. And unless you really internalise it and really seriously commit to it, there's no point in even taking that first step. It's a bit disturbing that the, the government seems to be more interested in picking fights. I mean, we saw the sort of the well-reported one about sort of Morrison and, and actually Angus Taylor also talking about inner city elites and the latte sipping set and the dinner, inner, inner city dinner parties and things well, Charles, like that. that made me laugh. Sorry, the Batuta advocate said, uh, what, does Rupert Murdoch live in Burke now or something? <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. Um, but it was also interesting. I sort of dug through a couple of um, uh, transcripts from radio interviews that Angus Taylor does. That's where he does most of his um, talking um, now with some sort of sympathetic um, disc jockeys, uh, DJs um, on commercial radio. And he's having actually a real go at AEMO, um, particularly um, because, because they don't fall in. Um, and agree with his gas-led recovery. And um, he just made some sort of outright accusations that they got their forecasting wrong. And it's a terrible sort of antagonistic approach with the um, with probably the, the one organisation which is actually trying to find a path through all of this. It's bad politics. Uh, look, the, what I've said several times that we, we blow Matt Keane's trumpet around here, but it's, it's, it's the combination of commitment and ability, right? You, either on its own, there's plenty of ideologues around it with no real ability, frankly, and there's plenty of people with ability who don't have the commitment to getting something done. When you put the two of them together then uh, and put it into a proper political process, then you make progress. Politics is not the art of making enemies. It's, mm. a, it's the art of getting people to do what you want. And I will say right here and now that the first sign of commitment if from the Morrison government, if there is to be a sign of commitment, will be shifting Angus Taylor out of energy. We are seeing the National Party uh, sort of influence in the government reducing. It's not just George Christensen uh, retiring. It's not just the fact that Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce aren't in Cabinet anymore. It's not, or their their ally, um, uh, what's his name uh, from the, uh, the, the, the the southern from uh, Cronulla, um, uh, <laughs> Scott Morrison. No, 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 no not, not Craig Scott. Kelly, Craig Kelly, Craig Kelly, excuse me, or Erica Betts, or or Kevin Andrews. They're all sort of going right. The resistance, uh, or the historic resistance, is reducing. And so the ability to get something done is actually increasing, but it needs a real sign. And a sign is putting a federal energy minister in place that the industry can actually work with. Well, I hope you're right, David. I'm not too sure. Um, no name immediately comes to mind amongst the ranks of the um, the coalition members at the moment, but I guess we'll see. Look, let's move on to um, something else. Um, AGL, we had an interview with Brett Redman a couple of weeks ago talking about his plan to demerge his company, split it into old and new, green and dirty, um, sort of um, behind the meter and, and centralised generation. Um, but he's not there anymore. What's happened, David? Well, I think this was uh, largely inevitable. Um, I never expected Brett to stay on. In demergers, I believe it's customary to give new teams their head to make the new companies have life. Uh, my theory of demergers in public companies is it's about hidden value. It's the fact that one part of the company holds back the other part, and when the other part's given its head, it suddenly all these fresh ideas and fresh thinking emerge and, and there's hidden value. And it normally takes a new team to do that. Um, in, in, and so I admire Brett in one sense for going early, but I think AGL is very open to criticism. It's obviously, I think the demerger is a good idea, but I do believe it would be customary to get it a lot further down the track before you went public with it, uh, rather than just announcing the general concept without having identified management teams, boards, uh, exactly which assets are going to go into which and what the arrangements are going to be, and without even confirming that both companies will be separately listed entities. I mean, the, for this demerge, it's the real value in this is, one, the hidden value, but even more than that, it's allowing the shareholders that want to own the coal and gas to be allowed to own that themselves uh, and allowing the, the, the new energy, the retailing and, the, and the, hopefully the greener side, 
to the shareholders who, who want to be there to own that. And if you don't have that separately listed, which they haven't even confirmed yet, you, you know, it just shows how half-baked the plan is. Well, indeed, indeed. Um, um, yes, well, it's interesting in the share price has gone down. Um, it, um, I'm not too sure whether an interim CEO quite solves the position, but maybe that's what you do, do need to actually sort of go through this particular project. Um, they're caught up in a takeover battle for Tilt Renewables, which is quite interesting. So um, obviously there's a lot of interest, as we've seen in the bids for Infogen and Windlab and others, um, for pipeline of um, or good pipelines of um, wind and solar assets. Yeah, so that's right. Uh, and UPCs are doing a sell down at the moment of all its projects, most of which haven't been built yet, particularly the New England uh, solar farm. Uh, but but we are seeing consolidation in the industry. Uh, I think Power is, uh, which now owns Tilt, is going to be quite a large company, uh, probably. <clears throat> almost as large as new AGL in terms of its uh, EBITDA earnings before interest tax and depreciation. Uh, and, and you know, with Neo and also emerging as a large company and the scale of many of these projects getting bigger and bigger, uh, uh, we're going to be talking about an, uh, the new Brett Redmonds of the world <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> Very good. Um, anything else to wrap up um, before we sort of close up the um, the conversation for today? Um, one just thing that just sort of came out of the side the other day was Coles um, sort of trumpeting its um, renewable energy deals. Um, it signed some contracts with Onji, which owns uh, the Willy Galici and um, uh, another solar farm in South Australia, whose name escapes me at the moment, and also with a series of, with NeoEnd um, for output from various wind and solar assets sort of scattered over the four states there. Intriguingly, though, it's not for the energy output, it's just for the LGCs, but they're laying claim to 70% renewables anyway. David, is that fair? Oh, you know, I, I haven't uh, thought about that very much, to be honest, Giles, and uh, fair or not, it's what they've announced. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I would say that we are seeing a slowdown just at the moment uh, in, um, in, in new announcements of any sort. We haven't seen that many major new corporate PPAs, not that many new brand new wind and solar farms announced. So I think we're all taking a pause while the New South Wales government policy gets lined up and because power prices now are so low that it's actually deterrent really to getting new projects up and going. And then the other piece of news is the, that we expect to be talking about next week is the uh, ESB post-2025 plan has been sort of taken uh, as Michael mentioned, into into cabinet, uh, where you know it's going to be pronounced on, and the question is what can actually be done by the federal government uh, without the cooperation of everyone else involved. Yes, yeah. Well, we expect to see the release of the draft recommendations put forward by the Energy Security Board next week. That's been sitting in um, Angus Taylor's office for nearly a month now. Um, and um, one of the concerns going around, um, apart from what might actually be hidden in it, but there's also just the lack of transparency because we've moved on from the COAG process where it all was the all the states involved and um, and you'd usually get people sort of commenting or doing something. But now it's one of these sort of cabinet processes where everything's very strict and no one can say anything. Thing. But anyway, we shall find that out next week, and that'll be pretty interesting. And um, we'll, Giles, uh, people can say things, they just don't know what they're talking about. That would be you and I, <laughs> me, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know whether that's an appropriate end to where to end the podcast, David, but it's the way we're going to end the podcast. Um, I'd just like to thank our listeners. I'd like to thank our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen. Um, please give us some feedback on the podcast, any suggestions for interviewees, um, and um, anything else. And um, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.